Hello and welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you are having a good week. This is series eight, episode six, I believe. And thank you. Thank you for listening. If you uh, got in touch about the episode last week, I really appreciate it. Or if you listened, thank you very much. It seemed that loads of you loved listening to Luma's story. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I highly recommend it. Luma Muffler, incredible writer, activist, teacher, coach, so many things. And a person that has done just incredible things for youth refugees across the globe, but specifically in America. And that's what her book is about. Go back, listen to it. It is such a great episode. I've got another brilliant episode for you today. Uh, It's with James Croft, who is a humanist chaplain, the humanist chaplain of Sussex University. I loved this episode. I knew absolutely nothing about being a humanist or what it means. And I didn't realise that it aligns so much with a lot of queer people who are searching for something more, something bigger. And I found this episode absolutely fascinating. I loved chatting to James. He's brilliant. And that conversation is coming up in just a moment. But first, I have a couple of listener emails as always. Dear Susie, I've wanted to email for ages. I've been listening to your whole podcast from when it started and I love it. I would apologise from the start. This may be rambling. With the ADHD and the dyslexia, writing isn't my forte. I have both of those things and I'm a writer for a living, so don't put yourself down. I love the pod. It's made my coming out journey over the last few years a little bit easier. I'm Pan and I've loved listening to so many people talk about their most comfy labels and it's helped me feel safe and confident in mine. I didn't come out until about 18 months ago and having the pod has really helped me find the words and see that I can have a great life too. My queer story has been full of twists and turns, seven wasted years at an all-girls school before I figured out that I liked women. My queer icon for an aunt who paved the way for me, my chosen family who have helped me find my labels, my first heartbreak, my first relationship and so much more. The episode that made me wanted to reach out was your recent one with Dan. I too work in STEM. Initially, I studied zoology and now I'm a science communicator, which mostly involves working with kids. I am so happy to hear an out member of the LGBTQIA community working publicly in STEM. His story also meant a lot to me because I've always loved to travel and I wanted to see the world. And since coming out and being more comfortable in expressing my queerness, I have felt more than ever before that I want to travel. Since coming out and being more comfortable in expressing my queerness, I have felt that more than ever. And I'm beginning to travel for the first time since, and it's scary. And I'm angry that I sit and worry about my safety and the safety of my friends while others don't have to. Hearing the positive experiences Dan had of travelling while in potentially dangerous places for queer people has really helped me. There is so much more I could say about how your pod has helped me, but I don't want to go on too long. Thank you for all that you do. And that is from Lulu, who has said that I can use her name if I like. Lulu, I am so pleased that you enjoyed Dan's episode. I loved it too. I just thought it was so fantastic and he's so brilliant. That's uh, If you've not listened to that episode yet, it's with Dan O'Neill, who is a biologist and an explorer and he is fantastic. I absolutely loved the conversation that I had with him. And thank you, Lulu. I'm so pleased that you enjoy the podcast and that that episode meant something to you. I'm going to share one more email. And uh, I received this one a few days ago and it really, really moved me. And it meant the world to me. Dear Susie, I hope you're well. Thank you for being the voice of hope. I'm a gay man living in Cameroon and not completely out for fear of being persecuted. Your podcast provides both hope and escapism, and I admire how your conversations have the most inclusive and engaging guests. I won't drag on too long, but I would like you to know that you're making an enormous impact and helping so many of us that live in repressive companies feel more included, and I get the sense that everything will one day be okay. 
It's such a pleasure to have found your podcast and I can't wait for the next episode. Thank you for all that you do for the community and I hope that you have a wonderful weekend with much love and gratitude. I'm not going to share that person's name, uh, but maybe you're listening right now and you know who you are and I want you to know that email meant so much to me. Uh, Over the four years of doing this podcast, I have received quite a lot from people who live in countries where homosexuality is yet to be decriminalised. And I didn't really know that that would happen when this podcast started. I didn't even consider that really, but I've had emails from people that live in Russia, in Saudi. This, This guy lives in Cameroon. And I am so pleased that the podcast has meant something to you and has created a sense of community for you. It, it genuinely means the world to me. And the thing that I wanted to say, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet for this podcast. I really don't want to do that. That makes me cringe. But the reason I wanted to share it was thank you for saying thank you to me. But you're absolutely right. It is the guests, the engaging guests that I've had on the show. I've done, I think, 108 episodes now. That means 108 people have sat down and shared their story with me and then shared their story with you. And it's all down to the guests. So... They have all been incredible, from people that I knew, to people that I reached out to, people that got in touch with me, tried to get so many different people from our wonderful community, and I'm so pleased that that has meant something to so many people that are living all over the world. Right, let's go on with today's conversation. I think it's a really great one. It is with James Croft, who, as I mentioned before, is a humanist and also a gay rights activist, and a human rights activist, really. He's going to tell you his story, Um, but here he is, my conversation with James Croft. Okay, listen, I have got a first for you today. Our guest is a university chaplain, the first humanist chaplain of Sussex University, James Croft. He says he helps students and staff define their values, reimagine their future and make change happen. A storyteller, a thinker, a teacher and an activist. Now, this interview came around in a way that no other interview has ever come around for this podcast. His husband got in touch with me. Now I'm going to, James is holding his face, but I'm hoping that's in a, in a good way. I'm going to read you the message that James's husband, Colton, sent me. Aww. And uh, you, you can see why I then had to, to invite James onto the show. Hello, Susie. I hope I'm not bothering you in the middle of your dinner. I had to reach out because I've been trying to catch up on your out podcast. And whilst listening to it, hearing you ask for suggestions and requests for future guests. And I came up with a brilliant one. I'm not sure if you're still taking requests or suggestions, but I figure I would drop you a line anyway. The person that I think would be brilliant on your show is someone who I'm actually a little biased about. His name is James Croft and he lives in Brighton. He's from London and lived in the US for the last 12 to 15 years, only to move back to the UK and settle in Brighton where he is now, the university chaplain at the University of Sussex. Once he skewed the position with the university, he realised he was the first university chaplain who is also a humanist in all of the UK. He's an incredibly accomplished and interesting person. And I'm not just saying that because he's my husband. (laughs) He is a graduate from Cambridge as well as Harvard. And he's an activist, not just for queer rights, but also was part of the Black Lives Matters campaign for quite some time, even being at the protest of Michael Brown's killing in Ferguson, Missouri. He is an accomplished speaker and writer and so much more that I feel bad that I'm probably forgetting a few details. But I think that he would be an incredible guest. And I agree too, Colton. I agree too. I think you're right. I think James is going to be an incredible guest. James, it's a pleasure to meet you and have you on the show. Thanks, Susie. I am blushing so much. I've never actually heard that message. Yes. So, because Colton only told me that he had written to you after you said, yes, that would be a great <laughs> idea. So I've, I'm just, I love my husband so much because he does stuff like that. Well, for many reasons, but partly because... Uh, He's very, very sweet. I'm very touched, actually. I'm going to not be able to stop grinning the whole time. <laughs> That's lovely. So, 
I was very keen to get you on the show because we've spoken in the past on this show, and I know that you've listened before, about people's relationship with faith and relationship with different kinds of organised religion. And I guess I know very little about humanism. I mean, the main thing I know is that when Alice and I were meant to have a big wedding, we were going to have a humanist ceremony yeah. because we really liked the idea of it and we liked the ethos of it. But I... And I might be a Philistine, so that's okay. You went to Harvard, I'm a Philistine. We're going to be a great match today. (laughs) But uh, I wasn't even really aware that it was something that would have big congregations, which I know that you sort of headed up whilst you were back in Missouri. For someone listening, and maybe me as well a little, um, could you give us like a a bit of a rundown on what, what humanism is and what being a humanist feels like or is to you? Absolutely. Any single humanist is going to answer this question differently but this is my personal answer i see humanism as a life stance a philosophy of life that's based on three central propositions the first is compassion a commitment to the equal worth and dignity of every person the second is reason the idea that we figure out what's going on in the world through the application of the human intellect and not necessarily because we've been told what's true by some particular book or teacher from the past Mm -hmm. And third, hope, the belief that we can, working together, make a better world for all of us to live in. That's basically what I think humanism mm-hmm. is. Compassion, reason, hope. That's it. Um, sign me up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And yeah. one of the great things about it is that those fundamental values that are central to humanism are found in all the great world traditions, depending yes. on how you interpret them. So. I personally think that it's perfectly possible to be a sort of Christian humanist or a Muslim humanist or things like that. So the way that I interpret it is a very inclusive philosophy that is committed to those ethical principles and principles for living. Uh, Most humanists are not religious. They don't believe in God. I don't believe in God and Mm -hmm. I'm an atheist. I think that we have just this one life to live and then we're done and that imposes upon us a responsibility to live it well Mm -hmm. and to encourage others to be able to live it well as well. But I increasingly feel that I'm more interested in finding common cause with people who share those big three values, regardless of their beliefs about God and the afterlife Mm -hmm. and things like that, than kind of making distinctions between people on that basis. But other humanists will definitely disagree with me on that. I've probably just annoyed every (laughs) other humanist in the country now. Well, what a great place to do it. When I was doing a bit of research on you and sort of broadly researching a bit of stuff about humanism, it felt like a logical or a sort of an easy bedfellow with someone that's gay. Is that something that, because so much of organised religion might have texts that are misinterpreted about queer people and... Has that been something that you've noticed or indeed why you initially sought out humanism because you wanted something that aligned with all of you? I didn't become a humanist because I'm gay. <laughs> I was raised in a non-religious household. Right. I was always interested in religion. Right. I sang in my 
school choir mm-hmm. and so once a month we do a Sunday service at the chapel yep. and we wear the cassock and everything like that but and that's I'm about dressing up yes right? exactly it's, a, it's very gay friendly <laughs> that part of it but um, I, I loved the music and the ritual yeah. and the incense and the sense of somewhere special set apart from the rest of the week to think about big questions like mm. why are we here how should we treat each other what's going to happen after we die all those big questions that religion deals with I never once believed that anything they were saying was true like it just never it honestly never occurred to me that the stories of the particular religion were actually true stories from history that was just i wasn't raised to believe that and i never was convinced that that was the case but i saw something in the community they were creating and in in having a space to have important discussions about human life and destiny purpose and meaning that really spoke to me Um, And so when I got to university, I delved more into it. I read, I tried to read all the texts of the great religious traditions. Did you? Yes, as an undergraduate, I set myself this task. So I read the Bible and the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita. I read Dianetics, the Ron Hubbard Scientology book. Do not recommend. Yeah, I was going to say, that (laughs) feels like, is that... That's Big Alien in the Sky. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. There's a lot of bits to it. Yeah. Um, but it's a. Uh, Did you read the Book of Mormon? Book. I read the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. Yes. And I didn't, eventually, I. I was very naive. I didn't quite realise how many there are, but there are far too many yeah. religious texts to possibly read all of them. But I, I also tried to read non-religious philosophical works, mm. and that's at university where I started to read a philosophical defences of humanism or kind of articulations of it as a worldview. And it gave me the sense that you actually can have a consistent, coherent view of life, which is not religious in a traditional sense, but is based on a connected set of ideas or principles that help you think about how to live. And that really spoke to me because even though I'd read all these books, I still, it just seemed obvious to me, and honestly, it still does, that religion is something that human beings do to make sense of our experience. Mm -hmm. And it's just like music or sport or any other cultural product of the human species. We create it to get through life. Mm. And the stories that we tell, they have a sort of psychological purpose or a community building purpose or moral purpose, but they're not literally true. That just always seemed to me very clear. And particularly clear when you read a lot of different religious texts, yeah. you know, because you're like, well, these all can't be true all yeah. at once. And so the, the humanist worldview was kind of a natural outgrowth of that philosophical exploration into religion. And I, I personally, I didn't come out of the closet till I was 27. Mm. So all that time undergraduate and when I first went to Harvard to start my graduate studies, I was really interested in religion and philosophy, but I was not out. Right. And that was not a part of my consideration. They came together later, but right. it wasn't part of how I became a humanist. In the it first wasn't place. A seeking out in that. I didn't have so many people that I've subsequently met, many queer people, particularly in America, where, I, mm. as you say, I lived for 15 years. They have had a childhood experience with religion, particularly with conservative Christianity. Yeah that is very negative if they're gay. I think to some extent that's that's Colton's experience as someone right. who grew up in a Catholic family. Right. And the experience drives them away from religion or 
makes them reconceptualize religion in some way to try and find a home within it. But that wasn't my experience. Mm. I I grew up in a you know happy non-religious home, two very accepting parents mm. who who were totally okay when I finally came out to them. So for me, it wasn't religion that caused the problem. <laughs> What what did you do as your undergrad when you were at Cambridge? Were you I doing philosophy? No, I studied this very weird programme, which was education studies with drama and English. So I, I had had a place at Central School. I did a lot ah, of theatre. right. And I decided I wanted to... The fork in the road. I know. I've had so many of those. <laughs> and sometimes I go back to them, you know, and I think, oh, is it the oh, right what decision? What did I do? What did I do? Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I thought that I went to a ridiculous private school... I had felt from a quite young age that 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 sort of imposes a moral responsibility on you to give back to society. I was very clear early on that the sort of education that I had was not common. Right. And that most people didn't get anything like the educational opportunities. Do you mind saying where you went? I went to St Paul's in London, in West London. Right, okay, so that's like a public school. Yes, public school. Just fee paying public school. Yeah, so for like listeners all over the world, it's like it's sort of like an Eton level. That might be this type yeah, sort of, sort thing of like that you an would Eton. Have they call us the comp because we're in London <laughs> and a day school rather than a boarding school. I know. Did you have to wear like no, 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 no not none of the none of the tails, tails or anything? Nothing no. like that. But uniform, right? Yes. But, so it's it's more cosmopolitan than many like British yeah. public schools. So it's not a boarding school, mm-hmm. um, and it's in in London, yeah. so that makes a difference. International intake of people from yes. all over the world, but a very expensive fee-paying school yes and for whatever reason i always felt like there there was a responsibility to do something with that for the public good i know it sounds incredibly self-aggrandizing but i just felt that no i think that that's really compassionate i don't think that's self-aggrandizing i think yes (laughs) but no i think that it's it just means that from quite a young age you could see the disparities and i think in somewhere like london and i'm sure listeners that live in sort of big cosmopolitan cities where you know people that have enormous wealth rub up against people that are having a tougher time and I think London feels extreme in that respect where you can be in parts of Pimlico for example which is a really sort of rah-rah area on one side of the road and the other side of the road there could be an estate which is you know where, where people are you know experiencing poverty or you know certainly having a much tougher Yes. experience and so i guess if you were growing up in london that must have been something you were quite aware of it was and i became aware i remember at least two moments when i really became aware of it one of them was at school when we used to have students from surrounding state schools come and use our facilities occasionally right, the, okay. the pool yeah, particularly and i would notice the reaction of these students there's two things the their astonished reaction to the amazing we had a fencing sal yeah that they used in the olympics in london to stage olympic fencing right on our school so these kids would come in and they would look at the school and they would be astonished at what we had compared to what they had yeah and i would see that and be like wow and And then the second moment I remember was I got into politics quite young. As a teenager, I started volunteering for my local Lib Dems (laughs) Um, and I started flyering and stuff. That's how they start you off. And so I flyered all around the constituency, which was Richmond Park. Would you have been school age then? Yeah, I was in school. Yeah. Yeah. 
and um, they were ha- so happy to have a young person yeah, I I- interested in politics. They treated me so well. It's amazing. If you're a young person, you want to feel good about yourself. <laughs> join a political party because they will love you. They'll love bomb you. It's amazing for your self-esteem. Um, but they sent me around all these different parts of Richmond mm-hmm. flyering. Mm-hmm. And so I got to see all different parts of my neighbourhood where I wouldn't otherwise have gone. Right. And it was immediately clear that the very nice leafy experience that i had was not universal even a few streets over Mm. in my neighborhood and that had a big impact on me i I was just like this is not fair Mm. it's not fair for me to have the sort of upbringing that i have and other people just down the road have a totally different experience of life such that if i wasn't doing this I never would intersect with them. You know, my life would just go on a totally different path. Yes. And so something about that, I guess, is part of why why I'm interested in doing the work I do today, because I don't, don't really want to accept that. I think that's not fair. I don't want to live in a society like that. I'm sort of drawing lines here, but please tell me if they're incorrect. It's kind of two questions together. It might make no sense. But I'm wondering whether... Was there like an otherness that you knew about yourself, even though it was a long time until you came out? And was there an otherness in other people that were in the surrounding areas that weren't in your school so that you could connect with them in a way that maybe a straight boy at your school who could sort of go, oh, I empathise that people are different, but but knowing a, a difference in yourself. Have I made something up there or does that make any sense to you? I think it makes sense. Oh, OK. I think there is, for me, it manifested as a sort of loneliness. Hmm. I was I've always been a very sociable person Mm -hmm. I like meeting people I like people and so I didn't you know lack for friends and Mm. I didn't but I'm the sort of person who can have tons of people around me and still sometimes feel very alone Mm. and certainly at school there was a feeling and I don't even know how early I would have been able to identify oh it's because you're a massive homosexual but the uh, a feeling of being different in a dangerous way in a way that um would not be appreciated yeah and you know i went to school in the 90s or i was there so it's not it's not ages ago but it's it is some time ago now yeah and something that we have spoken on the podcast before especially to men of uh, similar our our generation you know there was certainly the backdrop of aids and i think that would have had uh, an impact on i think all queer people but I would say there must have been an added fear for young men realising their sexuality and then seeing those tombstones on the TV ads and things like that I think that it created a level of fear or at least from what a lot of my friends have said. I I don't know see I remember being uh, myself being totally oblivious to any of that. The way I dealt with my gayness was to to completely subsume any thoughts of sex or relationships with people. So I just got it. I just put it down. Like I didn't think about that. I didn't allow myself to date or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, The the thing that I was aware of in that school environment, firstly, it's an all boys school, right? So that's a particular environment. And then it was the very British thing of there were teachers who everyone knew were gay but no one said it right so it's the open secret that some people existed as gay but you weren't allowed to talk about it that's a very psychologically toxic environment because at least 
if people express prejudice openly, you at least can identify with the thing that they're expressing prejudice towards and say, oh, no, actually, I'm one of those people who you hate. But if they won't even mention it, right, if it's an unmentionable category of being, that's an incredibly pompous statement, but whatever. (laughs) um, Then then there's no space for you to identify into. And I I think so it led to a lot of repression. And um, yeah, I I occasionally dated girls for, you know, for the between the first time I told my mother, (laughs) my parents, that I thought I might be gay. I was 17. We were in an Italian restaurant around the corner from our house. And are you an only child? No, no. I've got two siblings. I've got a younger brother and then a younger still sister. Mm -hmm. And we were all there together. And one of my siblings made a vaguely homophobic joke. And I burst into tears at the table. And I said, I don't think we should make fun of those people because I think I am one. And then everyone was like, and there was this silence and like spaghetti was dripping from the <laughs> fork to the plate and I'd said it quite loud so I was pretty sure that the whole right. restaurant was like looking at me and then we went home and I had a chat with my mum she kind of sat me down in the living room and she asked me all these questions these incredibly embarrassing yeah. questions like oh well have you ever had any feelings towards <laughs> your male classmates and and at the end of it, and I lied my way through that because I was just too scared to accept it. Um, but I just remember at the end, she said, well, James, you you do a lot of acting and you're a very good actor. And, and actors often have unusual sexual proclivities. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what she was expecting to put, you know, whips and chains under the bed or something. But uh, I thought that was a very good way. She, they... they they encouraged me, my parents, to just like see what happens, you know. Yeah, which is kind of a good response. Yeah, it's a very good response actually compared to m- most people. Yeah, and but, I think as well, I think sometimes people feel like they need to label something yeah. immediately, and I think sometimes it's okay to not sometimes all the time. It's okay to be like, oh, I'm going to work out what this feels like in six months, in eight months, in a year. It's okay yes. to not have a definite or not feel ready to say a definite. Yes. And whenever you come out, it's the right time. That's important to say to people. Yes. But for me, it it took 10 years, right? From that moment to when I finally accepted myself, it took 10 years. And I do sometimes regret that time because, uh, you know, if you're on the precipice of doing it and then you kind of pull back for the next 10 years. And it took um, being in a relationship with a wonderful woman. Um, Hello, Sarah, if you're out there. (laughs) Um, She's amazing. And getting quite serious and getting to the point where we're talking about marriage and children for me to be like, I, I can't I can't lock someone into a relationship that I know will not be able to satisfy them because it's not what I want. Um, well, wow, that's brave, though, to leave a relationship that is sort of. I, I guess, you know if you say it's with a wonderful person and I'm sure there was, yeah. you know, a level of uh, like love there. Oh, even. I love, I still love her. Yeah. I think she's a wonderful human being. I love everything that she did for me and everything about her. She's a hu- amazing human. Um, I mean, I had been very clear with all the girls I dated to my credit. I said, you know, I've got questions about my sexuality. So just so you know, up Good front. For you. so I was very upfront about it. Um, but it was really, it was two things. It was getting to that point where it was really 
a decision point where I had to commit to this relationship or and at the same time funnily so it's it's hard to tell the story because there's so many strands but uh, when I was in the US I got very involved in the humanist community at Harvard so they have a humanist chaplain at Harvard it's the oldest humanist chaplaincy at a US university right. and they've got a really good student community based around that and I was alone in America I didn't know anyone and I got involved in that as kind of a, a community and they were amazingly accepting really great warm community and I felt really loved by them I really loved being around them and they took this um, service trip to New Orleans after the hurricane mm -hmm. a couple of years after and they were still clearing up the streets and rebuilding houses and so we went to do a week of service like religious student groups would do but we just did it as humanists and, we and when went, you say service you mean just helping out people that yeah we we slept on the floor of a local church and we went round New Orleans helping uh, rebuild houses clearing rubble things like that and for whatever reason it, it coincided with the time that I was on a break with my long-term girlfriend to figure out my sexuality. Right, okay. And over that week in New Orleans, something changed, shifted inside me. And I just got gayer and gayer, like <laughs> every day, like more of it came out. So by the last day we were there, we had a night to ourselves on Bourbon Street. And I found this amazing... Um, fleur-de-lis shirt that had all these rhinestoned fleur-de-lis on it it was awesome and very skin tight um, I was beautiful then and <laughs> you're beautiful now James. Uh, Come I, on. I know inside at least um, and I went to a bar called Cafe Lafitte in Exile it's the oldest gay bar in America it's down the end of Bourbon Street and I walked into this bar and it was very very busy and this man was trying to get to the bar and he came up behind me and just put his hands on my hips and shifted me to the side and with this wonderful southern accent he said excuse me darling <laughs> and this tingle went through my whole body and I was like oh fuck that's how it's supposed to feel and in that moment in that southern drawl 10 years of oppression just fell away and uh, that moment I accepted myself that's amazing I've actually got a tattoo of the fleur-de-lis of, ah! of New Orleans because of that moment I wanted to remember it all the time I wanted yeah. to remember how it felt so I came home and I got this tattoo and so then I, ca I called Sarah mm -hmm. and told her that we couldn't get married and have kids because I was gay and that was the hardest phone call I of can, my life. yeah I can only imagine and she was amazing. She said, I want you to be happy. And obviously, I'm extremely sad, but I want, you know, I'm glad you're happy. And we've seen each other since, and I went to her wedding. Oh, so that's nice. She has kids, and it's wonderful. She's amazing. And I called my brother, and he said, I'm so glad you're happy. I'm playing Call of Duty, so <laughs> I need to get back to it. My sister said, oh, my God, at last, which was, a, <laughs> I was like, well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> um, and my parents were fine with it my father was really annoyed about the tattoo yeah um but but, but, but less about anything else no, they didn't care i mean actually they were very happy and they've become some of the biggest they're like the parents who my father is dead now but but they became like the the parents who um will show up to every prime every time i came home from america they'd have 
a new thing from Pride London. Like, oh. I got this T-shirt for you. I got this pin for you. I I have a gay friend at work you should meet. Yeah, everything like that. So now I know all the gays in London through my parents' networking That's really me. nice. Yeah, it was wonderful. That not that... It's so interesting, isn't it, that, like, there's... There's so much shame that so many of us deal with or repressed feelings, even when there's, you know, a happy, warm home. It just shows you that the societal pressure of living with being queer and growing up queer, even when you know you've got a a unit around you that will keep you warm and safe, that that the world is still a frightening place. You're absolutely right. I, I had no doubt that my family would accept me 100% 100% ever mm. I never had a single doubt about how my immediate family would react and it so for me it was it was all the other societal pressures that you talk about that I think the thing for me was that I had always wanted to live a, a public life right I wanted to maybe go into politics or to do something in re- right. like to to talk about ideas and at that time, I saw no one who was gay who was doing those things. Yeah. And I remember thinking when I was at university, I talked to, you know, I had a lot of gay friends at university. I was doing a lot of theatre. And and I remember thinking, I just, uh, the thought I kept having was, I don't want to write myself off, right? That's what kept, and I don't know, now I look back and I'm like, what are you talking about? There are tons of people with that sort of life who are openly gay. But I just couldn't. For some reason, I felt like if I accepted that about myself, I wouldn't be able to live the sort of life that I wanted. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why now I'm so public about it. Like immediately that happened. I knew that I had a responsibility to be very publicly gay Mm. because particularly in a position like mine at the University of Sussex now, there are actually still relatively few openly gay people in positions of leadership in areas to do with religion and spirituality. Yes, I can imagine that. Right. Partly because they're explicitly not allowed by many yeah. religions to take up so such positions. And so whenever I would do interfaith work and speak at churches or mosques and things like that, I, I would be very clear in identifying myself as gay, as a member of the queer community. In we even had, I mean, it was it's amazing the sort of things that happen when you're in these weird positions. Like I've been in, I was asked once to be on a panel at a mosque to talk about different religious perspectives on different issues, and I was like, of course, I'll come in as me and a Christian and someone else. And the day before we got an email, I was so excited to come for you to come and and to talk about these issues and and just so you know you can say anything but don't say anything about homosexuality and i was like uh, um well that's gonna be a problem yeah <laughs> because then i can't actually talk about my life yeah and your experiences right is- right and to some people that's the thing that i think straight cis people they don't guess like it's not a topic it's my life yeah and yeah, if you've yeah got, right you're right it's not abstract it's part of who i am um but it was it was a very good example of how to deal with that stuff because the other panelists were like also what's going on here so we just got together we talked about whether we would all pull out or oh right or that was kind of talk about it but eventually we just said well let's just ignore it let's just go and say what we're going to say anyway right. and we did and it was fine and we did talk about homosexuality and it was and how okay is, and, and have you found that you've been accepted when you talk to lots of different types of religion do you are you do you ever feel frightened about not frightened but unsure about coming out in those scenarios or or is it 
overwhelmingly positive most of the time? It's mostly positive. I never feel frightened. I refuse to be frightened. Mm. To I yeah. spent 10 years of my life being frightened of who I am. Yeah. I refuse to be frightened of it ever again. So I don't ever feel frightened. Um, I have had situations... It's really interesting to be a gay atheist involved in a lot of interfaith work. Yeah. Because there's two axes of difference there that they're not used to dealing with. Mm -hmm. They're not used to dealing with people who say, I don't actually believe in God and I'm not traditionally religious. And they're not used to dealing with people who are openly queer and who are who are unwilling to allow that part of themselves to be silenced as a condition of participation mm -hmm. in the activity. And it came up a lot. So I think you said in the very kind introduction that you gave <laughs> that uh, I was involved a bit in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. So I, I moved to St. Louis, Missouri in June of 2014 to finish my training to be clergy at this humanist congregation. So think of just like a church, but no God, basically. We met on Sundays, we had music, we had a talk, but we didn't talk about God or religion. That, and but do you talk about sort of... No. Talk about life. Yeah. Talk about how we should treat each other so what the way we did it practically was we break each year into a theme like the emotions and then each month into a sub theme so fear and hatred love right desire i wanted lust month but they talked me down to desire <laughs> okay but they we still we still talked about lust um but so that's how we practically did it so yeah. we don't have a, a liturgy or a scripture to work off so we have to kind of make it up as we go along but we're still trying to tackle the deepest questions of what it means to be a human being mm. and so i got there to finish training to be a leader of that congregation in june of 2014 mike brown who was a young black man unarmed black man who's just shot by a white police officer mm -hmm. was shot in um august of 2014 and the whole city exploded with anti-racist activism yeah i remember seeing images on the television yeah right and so and we were mile just a few miles away where our congregation was and i thought that you know i told you about humanism being about compassion right first about the idea that all human beings are equal mm -hmm. morally speaking and I think a society in which a, a heavily armed police officer can shoot dead an unarmed black man is not a society which reflects the equal dignity of every human mm. being. Call me controversial, <laughs> but I think that yeah, it's right. not. And so I felt a responsibility to get involved and to get our congregation involved in the activism that was happening. And so I spent a lot of time working alongside clergy of other faiths, trying to come up with interfaith ways to express solidarity with the black community and mm -hmm. to to do anti-racist work and things like that and it was sometimes there's tension about queerness it's not i i think it's not uncontroversial to say that religions uh, have a have a particular challenge incorporating queerness into mm -hmm. their worldview yeah. it, you just look at what's happening with the church of england right now yeah. with all the debates about can they bless a same-sex marriage can they i mean it's just they seem to be stuck about it they can't integrate us for some reason and that came out occasionally in our interfaith work it was and it was a very interesting dynamic i mean we could talk about it for hours and i don't want to you know take because it's complex but there was a lot of young black queer activists who were involved on the front lines of Ferguson who were demanding that not only 
the broader society take notice of the deep racism within it but also kind of turning around and demanding that some of the religious figures who are starting to step forward to to take a part in these protests deal with the homophobia in their own churches yes. right so there's this interactive conversation and it would sometimes become an issue like you know people said homophobic stuff you know at these meetings partly because they weren't used to getting any pushback for that um i it was a little bit afterwards but i remember one moment when well this is a kind of different story but I, i'm going all over the place That's so fine. we have to edit it yeah. really well right <laughs> um but we i spent some time on an advisory board for the mayor of st louis during covid right and so they put together a panel of clergy and I was asked to be on it and we were supposed to give sort of advice from our religious tradition about how to respond to COVID. Right, okay. I know. Feels... What do I know about it? I didn't know anything. Sure, yeah. But, but it turns out neither did they. They had no clue. It was astonishing. <laughs> but it was, they had one advertising campaign where they had a poster with two black men kissing and it was about trying to promote certain health awareness stuff. And uh, we had some difficult conversations about that. I remember one one minister declaring it unnatural and disturbing. And then you have to have a conversation, right? You have to be, at least I feel like it's my responsibility to be confident enough to raise the issue and not let it go past, but also not... You can't just tear down the relationship, right? You can't no, be like, you, can't you fucking homophobe, yeah. how dare you yeah. say that? Because you're already trying to do a difficult thing which is build relationships across a lot of different lines of difference religious difference racial difference mm. lots of different lines so my philosophy has always been you ask me whether i'm scared to so that's i'm getting back to that eventually yeah, no. you have to bring your whole self all the time and be unafraid to do that but you yeah you have to maintain relationship and if you do that over the long term you can actually generate more understanding for queer people but it's very difficult and sometimes it feels feels dehumanizing and you have to kind of take a deep breath and find your people you should i just go to a gay bar <laughs> dance <laughs> be completely debauched for a while and then kind of return to the fray but it seems like from the moment that you had that moment in that bar in new orleans you was it it, it can't have been much after that that you did your six minute twelve second speech that oh. ended up being sort of a bit of a, a sort of a moment for you. Is it fair to say? And I mean, the, the, I don't want to. I watched the speech today. Would you mind sharing what that speech was about? Because it felt like I, maybe I'm incorrect, but just from looking from a distance, it maybe feels like that was a a turning point in your career or in your in your role as a public speaker or an educator or an, a, yeah. an activist it was no you're very perceptive yes very very correct so i i came out on this service trip so that was in spring break so american terms university terms are split in two by spring break or at least that yeah. one is and then i came back and during that term i had been taking a class in what's called public narrative it's the art of using your personal story to lead people right. on an issue and i'd been working on a completely different narrative about something else 
but the time I came out was exactly when the It Gets Better campaign was happening mm-hmm. and a huge amount of public awareness was growing about particularly queer youth suicide. Mm. And I felt an enormous amount of responsibility because partly because I'd been a secondary school teacher. My first job out of university was teaching. I was the worst secondary school teacher ever, which is why I I didn't continue. I find it really hard to believe that. No, I was so bad, I find it really hard to believe that. I was awful. I can't keep control in the classroom. So it was just a complete chaos. One-on-one, it's great. I feel like one-on-one, you'd be a great teacher. (laughs) I would be a great teacher. Well, just give me one person. I can do that. But uh, I did that for two years, but I was in the closet the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it. I was like, there were queer kids in my classroom. Of course there were. Must have been. And they needed role models. And I could have been one. Even if I had been a shit one, I would have been one. And I wasn't one because I was too scared. I I had let that fear stop me from being who I was. And I I saw this movement growing around me. And I said, I have to... I have to say something. I have to do something about it. So I thought, well, I'm learning all this stuff about public narrative. I'm going to change what I'm writing about. I'm going to write about this thing that's happening of all the suicides of queer kids. And and Harvard will make an It Gets Better video. And at least my school at Harvard will make one. That was going to be our campaign because you have to have a campaign for the class. And they ended up having a rally at campus. And I... I said, well, I'll speak at the rally. I'd never spoken at a rally before. I'd done a fair amount of public speaking before, but never like at a political rally. Now, I was very nervous and I gave my speech and I asked someone to film it. I gave the camera to a particularly cute guy in the audience. And I was like, can you film this for me? And I presented it to the class. I was like, by the way, I, I did this. I actually did my speech. I didn't just do it for the class. I did it as a real campaign. And the professor liked it so much that he started using it to teach the class. Mm. And just before we go on, it was called six minutes, 12 seconds. because uh, 6.12 seconds. Oh, sorry, yeah. 6.12 yeah. seconds. Because that was... One of the young people who had killed themselves had jumped off a bridge. And oh. I calculated how much time it would take to fall from that yeah. bridge to the water. And that was the emotional hook that opened it yeah because i think that's what grabs you when you watch it even now it was years it was i mean must be in nearly 10 years ago now more than 10 years yeah, ago right. 13 years ago but yeah when i when i looked at it i was like oh that it it punches you in the face you know it grabs you i that's what i wanted yeah, yeah sorry Thank please you. do go on no i mean i'm very proud of it mm. <laughs> But uh, they they started to use that to teach the class because they're always looking for examples of Mm -hmm. students doing it. And I think part of what was good is it was a real situation. It wasn't in a classroom. A real issue that's still a live issue. And it was a narrative that clearly resonated with people. And because of um, the particular teacher who teaches this class, a guy called Marshall Gans, he's a community organiser who um, worked with many campaigns, including the first Obama presidential campaign, and so helped to get Obama elected using this technique of teaching organizers how to tell their stories. And so he's well known and works all over the world with all sorts of social justice campaigns. And so he'd take this traveling workshop and part of the workshop was my talk. And so now I get every couple of weeks, I get an email or a LinkedIn message from people who've seen that video and 
it's the most amazing one is that they did some um, community organizing work in China, which is very unusual because it's not it's quite locked down mm -hmm. how you're able to lobby the government in China. Let's put it politically like that. Yeah. Um, but they want to teach community organizing. So they went to do it. And a Chinese broadcaster made a, a video of them teaching the class and a clip of my talk was played on Chinese national television, which someone told me they think is the first time a pro-gay rights message ever went out on national television in China. And and I got a huge amount of people writing to me. I bet. It was very... And they still use it today. I mean, it's incredibly moving to know. And, I mean, in a sense, the actual campaign, we did it, we made a Nick Gets Better video. It doesn't change the world on its own. But the the story itself it did play a pivotal role in deciding the future of my life because i had thought maybe i'd be like an academic you know because mm -hmm. i was doing a doctorate that's kind of what you do and then i felt like no i i want to speak out about issues that are important to me and i want to do more of that work of trying to rouse people to care about the the things that are affecting people who don't have a voice and so that that talk helped me reconceptualize myself as more an activist and someone who wanted to build community and help people make change and that kind of got me eventually to chaplaincy which is what i do now and so now that you're sort of clergy but without yes. god mm -hmm. um what does that look like in as much as so you were saying about you, you know, you, you meet on a Sunday and you talk about different things that are affecting the world and how to sort of create change and things like that. But how does one become a clergyman of a <laughs> non-clergy? Yeah. <laughs> how do you become like an atheist priest? Yeah, that's the thing. How it's like, do you get do you get a bishop's hat? I don't. Sadly, there's Such no a clothes. Shame. I'm bishop's so hat's disappointed. So good. I yeah. know no Gucci loafers. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. I don't get anything like that. Um, there is a movement in the States, doesn't exist in the UK anymore, called Ethical Culture. It started about 145 years ago in New York City. It was started by the son of a Jewish rabbi. And he had this idea of creating a congregation for everyone, regardless of what they believed about religion. He thought that religious community was very very important mm. because it got people together to he thought of it as sort of a powerhouse for moral energy where people came together to think about really big questions and then went out into the world and lived their values more energetically because of the community that they'd had which interestingly later sociologists have found is exactly what congregations do yeah so he was very prescient about that but he himself after going to germany and studying a bunch of philosophy stopped believing in god he just didn't really think that there was a personal God anymore. And so he was trying to find a way to square his belief in the importance of religious community with the fact that he was no longer convinced that there was actually a God. Um, and that led him to found this thing that he called ethical culture, which is a weird name, but it sounds like a cult, but it's not a cult. It's a v now very small network of congregations that are broadly humanistic. who don't talk about God or religion, but they do meet usually on a Sunday for community building, activism, social service, uh, music, 
you know, all those things that you get out of a church, you just don't have the other piece of it, yeah. of the religion. And they um, still train people to lead them. So you, you apply, and if they accept you onto the training, you do a sort of two-year process of reading and writing papers and academic study right. into the tradition and what it means, just like any other religion. Yeah. And also they train you in practical things like how do you manage a budget and staff and all this stuff that I had never done before. And then the last part is a one-year apprenticeship at an existing community and that's what brought me to st louis it was doing that right. one year apprenticeship and then i stayed on there to be one of their professional clergy because and is that the biggest one in the world it's the, the one biggest in... one in the world now i put that on all my bios because it sounds so impressive but there are only 24 of these things in the world hey, and uh, doesn't matter we're only the biggest by a small amount so. doesn't matter take it it is true yeah take it how 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 big are we talking we had, when I joined it, and not counting COVID, because I'm not sure what happened. Of course, yeah. I led them through COVID, and then I was like, I, I can't do anymore. Right. <laughs> I've just, I've, I've done all I can. Um, the, I think we had about 375 pledging adults and an attendance of 100 to 140 each Sunday, depending on what was happening. And it sometimes got a lot more and sometimes got a lot less, depending on where in the year. Um, like the the Sunday after Trump was elected, we had hundreds of people. Um, and that's one of the funny things that when you feel people's hunger for community at different times, like yeah. when do they need to be together with people who share their values? Yes. Um, oh, but it's quite a sizable congregation. I mean, it's not a very large congregation. You've got mega churches in America with tens of thousands. Of well, yeah, members. I mean, mega churches are a whole other. I mean, I could yes. talk to you about that for a but oh, I, think, yes. I think we need a drink to do that just because I'm I'd fascinated by it. I'd love it. that. Um, I kind of secretly love mega churches. I love visiting them. Well, I think I'm sort of, yeah, fascinated by like the documentary series on sort of different. Yes. Like people that are at the top and then Justin oh, Bieber arrives and it's all just I know. insane. These pe I, I just can't imagine. We spent so much time in our movement of trying to select people who were sort of psychologically healthy to yeah, lead a right. congregation and it seems to me that evangelical mega churches don't give a shit no <laughs> no if anything the more sort of yes. away from the, re the, more the realism you are, yeah. you are the better yeah it's really disturbing isn't it and so what then brought you back to the UK a couple of things mainly the first is Colton my husband you've spoken about him he's a, just and the I've most met wonderful him. you've met him and Ella our chihuahua he's the most wonderful human ever and I'm incredibly lucky that I met him because I'm kind of a intense sort of person. Um, I'm extreme in a lot of ways, you know. I'm I tend towards kind of being a bit of a obsessive about my work, and um, I obviously have some sort of ADD or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm very like wired all the time. And I heavily he, relate. Right. Good. Yes, <laughs> I got that impression from the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he is just, he's like almost the anti-me in some ways. He's hes much quieter. He likes quiet, whereas I'm incredibly loud. <laughs> and he's very good at routine. And I'm terrible at routine, but he's able to get up at the same time every day and do the same thing. And I am learning so much about how to live life as a successful human from him. Mm. Um, and hopefully I'm teaching him a little bit about how to be a total mess and yeah, a complete muppet. I'm sure that's not hopefully. the case. <laughs> um, 
but he he's always wanted to live in the UK. Right. Well, not maybe not always, but for since we met, you know, he's said he'd like to do that. And I've been away for 15 years. It's a long time to be away from home. Time. America is changing and it's not pleasant to be engaged in politics there because we were quite political, you know, we were quite outspoken yeah. with our congregation's values. But partly because we were one of the most progressive congregations in the city. Mm-hmm. So on things like gay rights, trans rights in particular, sure. um, gun control, we on all these issues, we were right out. I actually had a wall in my office, a corkboard that I just dedicated to the hate mail that I would get. And I, I got the most amazing things. I mean, one of them that I got a repeat one from this guy. It was a postcard, like a printed postcard. And on the back... Not written, but like typewritten, cut out and then stuck with sellotape on the back messages about how it was a clear and present danger to the United States for my opposition to gun ownership. Wow, that feels a bit bodyguard. It you does. Guy yeah, it is. But that's exactly, it was literally, they typed it on a typewriter and then cut it out and then stuck it to a postcard. I mean, that was the weird sort of, not a lot, but I had enough for a corkboard over eight years. Um, but uh, I, it got to the point where I increasingly didn't feel like it was where I wanted to live long term. It just didn't feel a welcoming place to live anymore. And... The intensity of it was getting to me. I was yeah. unhappy, yeah. particularly after COVID. You know, it just... and thinking about those three sort of the the core things of humanism about sort of is it community, compassion, Com- reason, hope. Compassion, reason, hope. That's it. Hope. It must be hard to keep the hope when you're receiving. Well, when you're in a place that is so. I mean, I feel like I think we're really lurching to the right here at the moment and it feels yeah I, I feel really uncomfortable with I mean with the day that we're recording it's we're coming to the end of the week of the Conservative Party conference where yes. they have thrown our trans brothers and sisters under a bus because they have nothing else to do nothing of use to share but it it feels like in America it's that but there's just more people so there's yep. just more hate more people and they've gone further down the same route I, I yeah. think my fear is that the UK is moving in the same direction where mm. the United States has gone with more dysfunctional politics and more polarizing culture war stuff. And I hate even calling it culture war stuff because this is people's lives. I yeah. mean, when, when the Prime Minister of England is is openly transphobic from the podium at their at their major conference speech, that's a scary, yeah. scary thing. And it should be way outside the bounds of political acceptability. Yeah. But the fact that it's clearly very mainstream, because you can't get more m- mainstream than the the conference speech of the prime minister, yeah. that's terrifying. And uh, actually, that was part of the impetus. I'm going to sound incredibly grand saying this, but we talked about I've always been involved in politics. I, I enjoy politics, actually, at least the idea of it I enjoy I like the idea of being involved and making a difference and I I felt like in America I couldn't be fully involved because I was never I was never going to be an American I was always going to be an immigrant but here this is my home and I hate seeing what they've done to my home over Mm. the last 15 years that this government particularly has fucked this country Mm. and I'm furious about it and part of me wanted to get back to just play a tiny little role in pushing it back the other way 
and restoring some sanity to our politics and some honor frankly and decency mm. to it because i i hate what this country is becoming so i'm just i don't need to do a little political rant but i feel very passionately that we've been very poorly served by our political leaders over the past 15 years and i, I just thought well why don't i go back and get back involved and and do my bit to try and make it better <laughs> do you think you'll ever get into politics i might i might I, I think, wouldn't say no. I think you'd have my vote. Yeah? Yeah, I think but so. But I'm going to do it then. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm just right now a bit, I feel a bit homeless. I think a lot of people yeah. feel a bit homeless in terms of... Party. Yeah. I've always, I grew up a Lib Dem because our, our constituency was a Lib Dem conservative marginal, one of those weird ones. So the obvious choice for your progressive was to go with the Lib Dems. Yes. But as I've thought more about politics, my politics has moved particularly during the Mike Brown period when we were doing a lot of anti-racist activism mm. and really confronting systemic injustice and seeing how deep systemic injustices are woven into the fabric of our society. I feel like at least the sort of liberalism that I believed in when I was a teenager is a bit naive and that you can't just kind of, you know let people do what they want and everything will be okay you be, need to be a bit more muscular mm. to try and reshape some of the structures that are making things unequal i mean i actually quite support this idea about vat on private school fees as a private school one myself i'm a terrible class traitor but i think they're outrageous bastions of privilege yeah. yes. and they it's undeniable i mean if we are it just perpetuates generational advantage and inequality mm. and so i think that we have to have a real we have to have a think about what sort of country we want to be and i don't know that any of the parties right now have really put forward a vision that that it really excites me and mm. makes me feel like oh i'm in for that that said anything would be better yeah. than what we've got right now yeah that, that said please do vote <laughs> yes oh definitely vote i love voting me too i I've love always love oh i love a general election i love oh, a jenny yes. I, just, I find it so exciting oh do you call, really it, call it a jenny yeah absolutely. did you just come up with that for this no i call it a jenny oh, yeah. I'm oh, call it going out to vote too. for the jenny oh i love it i love going to the polling station yeah Oh, honestly, I love a day there. I, the, the people that find you. It, it feels like a little day out. I love yes. doing the local ones. I love yeah. doing all of it. Yeah, I love it. I was so excited to vote in our recent local elections because <laughs> yes. I hadn't voted here for ages. I was so long in America, they took away my right to vote even from abroad. Oh, really? Because there used to be, I think they've stopped this now, but there used to be a length of time if you're out of the country, then you can't vote right. anymore. And I tried to vote and they were like, you can't. And I was so outraged. But so I was excited to go to the locals this this time. And I was, just after I voted, I came out. And who was, was going in to talk to the poll workers? But uh, Susie Izzard was there. No way. Yes, they were. It was amazing. That is an exciting day out. Yes, it was a good day out. I feel really interested in humanism. And I feel like it could be something. Because I feel like I've... I love the sort of tradition of something like church. And I, when I was a teenager, I used to have to go for school. And I liked the feeling of togetherness, but never really bought into the God stuff. And, never, and, and, and always sort of felt a bit like, I'm not sure they want me here, if they mm. really knew who I was. Yep. So if anyone's listening and they're thinking, similarly to me, oh, maybe this is a home for me, how could they find out more about it? Or how could someone become part of a of a group how, how would you do that so the easiest way i think there are tons of people out there 
who mm. feel that yeah. actually. Yeah, I feel yeah, I feel sure of it. Yeah, I'm certain. There are people who feel like they want something in their life that connects them to other people and to big questions about why we're here, but they don't resonate with a religion for mm. whatever reason or they don't feel like they would be welcome there, which honestly I still feel like I wouldn't be. Even mm. the most accepting churches, I'm still a bit suspicious, honestly. Mm. And that's maybe unfair, but I'm a queer person with my experiences and I'm yeah. standing by it. And so if you want to find out more about humanism, Humanists UK is mm -hmm. a natural organization to go to. They're the national body that represents humanists. They're run by a really good friend of mine, Andrew Copson, who you should have on the podcast because okay. he's the chief executive of Humanists UK and also a gay. Great. So he would be great. Tick, tick. Uh, yeah, no, he's fascinating and a really great person. The thing about Humanist UK is that it's um, a sort of affiliate organisation that has local branches. Right. And you can go for great talks and stuff like that. Some of them are more feel-like communities than other ones. But you know what? It, it A lot of them, they, they're more like a place you can go for a programme, like an intellectually edifying programme. Sure. But the feeling of connection with other people isn't always there. And that's something that I think there's a gap for. There is this thing called Sunday Assembly. We have one in yeah. Brighton, which meets monthly, which if there's one near you, totally check it out. It's like very upbeat, fun. Yeah, I think the, there are some stand-ups that are involved in that or people that used to be comics. Yes, that yes. Are, it was Pippa heavy. Evans and Sanderson yeah. Jones. That's yes, who I know started them both. It. Yes, right. And so um, Sanderson and I, good friends. Ah. How Sanderson, if you're listening to this. Um, and they um, started this thing. It's kind of like an atheist revival experience. It's upbeat, energetic music. That does try and capture the experience of being at church, yeah. but it's not religious. But generally, monthly, and there's some place you can go. And that's that's if you want a very high-energy experience. Some yeah. people really resonate with that. I quite like it. Um, some people find it a bit, you know, off off-putting a bit too happy clappy for them but yeah definitely check out your local sunday assembly but i'm actually really interested in trying to think about how we can build more community spaces that mm. do the sorts of things my congregation in america used to do because i just think that there's a tendency to to believe that when people stop being religious the needs that drove people to religion just fall away like they don't have those needs anymore but i believe that those needs are just unmet yeah right the needs for deep community and connection with other people and to be part of something bigger than ourselves they persist those are human needs mm. that, those are what religion grew out of yeah and they don't go away when you decide that you don't find a home in any of the existing religions. They, you just don't have a space for those. And so I'm really interested in finding a way to recreate some of the benefits of religion for people who aren't religious. And that, to get in a plug for my university, since they'll be happy if I do it, that's one of the things I want to do at the University of Sussex. We have a great chaplaincy team of chaplains from many different religious traditions and my goal is to work together with them to help build. We work out this amazing building called the Meeting House. It's very beautiful, Basil Spence, like circular building. It's absolutely gorgeous. And to make that a hub for community life on campus. 
so that every student feels like they belong at the university, that they know mm. someone who cares about them, that the huge levels of loneliness and isolation that we're seeing among many university students, that we really tackle that by connecting them to each other in not just a shallow way, but a way that they feel they're able to be vulnerable and trust each other. And that's one of the things I see us doing at our chaplaincy. Can I become a student and come there? Yeah, great. I Are you kidding? I haven't got I haven't got any A levels, um, but I, I just, I'll, I'll come. It's fine. Um, right, I'm going to ask you the final question. Okay. of the show, and you've listened before, so you know yes. what it is. But I'm thinking of that version of James, maybe that version of you who's in the bar in New Orleans, and you said when that guy put your his hands on your waist, you thought, oh fuck. <laughs> And if you could reach out to that version of you, or indeed, some people don't like the idea of meddling with the past. If there's someone that's ha- recently maybe had that old fuck moment, um, you know, it should be old joy. But, you know, I appreciate we all go through the old, no, not all of us. Some of us go through the old fuck moment as well. But if you could reach out to that person right now and give them a bit of advice and pop your arm around their shoulder, what would you say? I think I'm going to go back to to my 17-year-old self, actually. On go the, on, then. On the couch with my mum after telling a whole okay, Italian yeah, restaurant I it. thought I might be gay. I, I would tell myself that it's going to be okay. I would tell myself that that actually you're going to love being gay, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's absolutely fantastic. I, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm gay. Like I, I think it's actually helped me understand other people better. And to be, because to be honest, if I wasn't gay, I'd be a cis white man who went to private school and then went to Cambridge and Harvard. I would be insufferable, wouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, I'd be impossible to be around. I think that that, that experience of being on the outside of something has made me such a better person and has actually shaped my whole outlook on life. And I would just try and convince that 17-year-old version of me that actually um, gay people are rare and special, that, that queerness is a gift to the world and you get to give it and to look forward to that perfect way to end the conversation i've loved this me too i've had the time of my life that was the brilliant james croft i really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did check him out online he is just brilliant i loved hearing that and i really hope that you did too i'll be back next week with the final episode of this series as ever thank you so much for listening and take care bye-bye